Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Def Left Pod. Today, me and my guest, Paul Burns, we're going to be discussing the 2001 Def Leppard movie, Hysteria, the Def Leppard story. Now, it's a TV movie produced by the music channel VH1, and it was described as the true story of the most successful pop metal band of the 1980s. So in a moment, we'll do a little bit of background, we'll do a summary of the plot. Me and Paul are going to have a wider discussion about all the different facets of the film. And then we'll also have a little talk about the very idea of how you best tell the story of Death Leopard on film and whether it's even possible at all. However, before we get into all of the granular detail, Paul, what I want to know, what are your opening thoughts on Hysteria, the Death Leopard story? So I watched it twice in preparation for talking today. My plan had been to watch it three times, but my first watch took, it took me about three and a half hours to get through my first watch because I kept pausing it. I had so many notes I had to make. I, I just could not stop. Pause, write that down. Pause, notice that. It was just mind blowing. Um, and then the second time I watched it, I watched it with my other half. Cat, she is a big lover of if you actually look on her Twitter bio, it says, I, I, I quote, I love shit films, uh, all things kitsch and crap are a real favorite of her. So she was more than happy to sit down and watch it. And I would argue, ultimately, it is something that qualifies as so bad it's good. I had watched it years ago when it was first released. I know, like, I can't remember, it must have been broadcast on VH1 or something like that. But I definitely watched it when it was first released. And the thing that the only thing I really remembered from that first watch was the very opening scene, which sets the scene for what we're about to watch, because it opens on the 31st of December, 1984. It tells us on the ident on the screen and it tells us that we're in Sheffield. Those of us with Def Leppard fans know what's coming. But I live. 30 miles to the west of Sheffield. And in the height of summer, the weather is grim. Whereabouts in the world I am. So what this opens onto, this dusty, sultry, scorching hot New Year's Eve in the hills outside Sheffield, it just immediately discredited the film from the literally the opening second of the film, it is discredited. And... Uh, yeah, it results in it's genuinely one of the worst films I've ever seen. It's it's one of it's worse than that one with Madonna on the beach. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, I feel this might be the, the the theme of this episode today. But what we're going to do is we're going to try our best to not turn it into a mean spirited podcast. Paul, you know we're going to we're trying we're going to try and give it due as well. I'm going to try and talk around it. But at the end of the day, you know if it looks like a stick and it smells like a stick, then we need to call it a stick. And indeed, Paul, your views are very much mirrored by Joe Elliott. So for anyone who's a massive Def Leppard fan and feels that you can't say anything negative about Def Leppard, even things that they're not involved in the making of, which is very much the case with this film, you're in a safe place. Joe Elliott doesn't like this film either. And he's been very unkind about it. And in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine in 2019, I have a quote from here and he says, We were subjects of a VH1 movie 20 years ago. That was the biggest pile of shit ever made. Okay, so uh, it's clear Joe does not not like this film. He then goes on to say, I doubt very much we would really be interested in making another one. And then in other various interviews, he describes it as terrible. And in another interview, when he's 
told by a journalist that that journalist hasn't seen it. Joe replies, oh man, don't do it to yourself. Do yourself a big favor and don't. So it's <laughs> Joe Elliott himself does not like this film. However, despite your views, Paul, and despite Joe Elliott's views and possibly my views, as we'll, um, we'll go on to later on when we have a chat, there are some upsides to this film in terms of Despite this general negativity, when it was released in 2001, it actually did quite well. Now, it might have done quite well because no one had actually seen it, and then they just wanted to see a Death Leopard film. But when it was premiered, 8 million people tuned in to watch it, and then at midnight that night, it was put on again, and another 5 million people watched it as well. So, you know, 13 million people watched it within the first 24 hours. And also... If you look at Amazon and you look at the DVD or Blu-ray for this film, there's actually 454 reviews. And of those 454 reviews, the average review is five stars, which is just phenomenal. So what we're going to do, Paul, just to sort of start us off before we get in, we get into the, um, the nuts and bolts of the film, we're going to play a little game, okay? And I'm going to okay. read you a few of these reviews from Amazon. And I want you to guess, is the review from Hysteria, the Daft Leopard story, or is it from the world-renowned classic, Citizen Kane? Okay? So, okay. <laughs> now what I noticed, by the way, it was quite hard to find reviews where it doesn't blatantly give it away. And also what I noticed, a lot of these reviews seem to be about the actual DVD itself and the service provided by Amazon as opposed to the movie. <laughs> Okay, so that muddies the waters a little bit. So I've got three, four, five. So let me just get my phone. Let me just get some up and we'll give you the first one. Okay, they're all quite short. So I'll tell you what's being said and I'll tell you how many stars it got. And you need to answer Hysteria, the Def Leppard story or Citizen Kane. Okay. I tried to think of a name for this game, but I, I couldn't I couldn't think of anything that ran with Kane. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> Review number one, Paul. Saw the movie on television and decided it was a movie I would like to watch again in the future. Since, pa- <laughs> since, purchase, since purchasing it, I have indeed watched it several times with other adult family members and friends. Five stars. <laughs> that, that cannot be the Def Leppard film. So straight away, because it, it can't, it, unless it's a piss take. So it has to be Citizen Kane. Wrong, Paul. That was hysteria. <laughs> the Death Leopard story. That was Liz in Canada on the sixth of January, two thousand and thirteen. Okay. All right. Next. Nice short one. This spectacular. <laughs> okay. Spe- <laughs> this is the maddest review. Okay. Spectacular rosebud. Five stars. I mean, given how much you're giggling, it, it's got to be the hysteria. No, Citizen oh, Kane. Oh, no. <laughs> it. Okay, right, okay. Right, next one. I'm sorry, but haven't watched this film. I could not wait for it to end. I haven't watched such a boring film for a very long time. I don't understand it. One star. Right, I'm get I'm get, gonna guess Citizen Kane because I've never seen Citizen Kane, but my granddad notoriously hated it, and that sounds like something he would have said. Correct, Paul. That was Citizen Kane. You okay? Next one. 
I read about this being very good, so I thought I'd buy it and give it a go. The film was awful, seven exclamation marks. The service was <laughs> the service was prompt and DVD arrived within a couple of days. <laughs> One star. <laughs> right, hysteria. Citizen Kane? Oh, goodness me. Okay. <laughs> Last one. Loved it. We'll watch it many more times. Five stars. I, that, I mean, that sounds fanboy or girlish. The hysteria. Correct. Now, I never kept count how many you got there, but you did, you got a couple right. So no, I reckon it was about 50-50. Possibly got a few more wrong than got right. Yeah, that's remarkable. What a fantastic idea. Well done. Well, <laughs> well, you know, the first thing that I thought when I was watching Hysteria, the Def Leppard story, was Orson Welles and the classic Citizen Kane, the groundbreaking <laughs> movie. Well, that's the funny thing. It's so interesting that that's the film you picked. Like you just obviously thought of like, what is the film that always gets called the greatest of all time? So brilliantly done. Well done. <laughs> all right, then. Okay. So as you can see, there was some better reviews there of Hysteria, the Daft Leppard story, than there was Citizen Kane, which means therefore Hysteria, the Daft Leppard story is better than Citizen Kane. And what we're going to do in a minute, Paul, or in about two minutes, is we are going to look at some of the positives in this film first. Starting off on a high, <laughs> and then we'll drag it down into the gutter as we go on. Now, I feel bad because I know that you've already watched the film two times. Um, and what I'm going to do now is I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read out a summary of the plot. Now, the reason I'm doing that is because I appreciate not everyone will have seen this film. <laughs> well done. So... To understand what we're talking about, you're going to need to know what actually happens in the film. So in the show notes to this show, I'll put the YouTube link where you can um, you can watch it for free. If you can put up with the German subtitles, which is which is what I watched it on because <laughs> I wasn't paying for this. So yeah, I might mute you during this bit so I don't have to listen to it all again. Oh, fa fair play. <laughs> Understandable. So what you might want to do is you might want to stop now. You might want to watch the, watch the film and then come back to it later. Or you might want to listen to it and then watch the film afterwards and see if you think we were right or don't watch the film i would recommend that and then just go by this uh, plot summary now the movie opens with rick allen and his girlfriend driving along a country road and the car repeatedly prevents rick from overtaking which ultimately results in rick's car crashing as he does try to overtake on a bend this is the accident in which rick loses his arm but at this point, rather than see the aftermath of the crash, the movie then cuts to seven years earlier. Anything you want to add to that, Paul, or are you happy with that so far? No, that, yeah, very much so. But again, I, I suppose, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to swear again. Just the fucking weather. Oh. I, I cannot stress enough to listeners from outside the UK how astonishingly bad a piece of filmmaking it is from that opening scene. It's just impossible to imagine that you could ever have that weather in that part of the world. It's crazy. Do you know where it was filmed? Canada, I believe. Yeah, that, but I don't yeah. know the specifics. Yeah, it was filmed in Montreal. Now, I haven't. I don't know. Is I just assumed everywhere in Canada was quite cold, but obviously Montreal might be quite nice certain time of no, year. No, Montreal is, is Canada one of the. This is going to sound terrible to our Canadian listeners. I think Canada is somewhere we get very defined seasons, isn't it? Yeah. Very hot. I could be completely wrong. I've never been, unfortunately. But yeah, very hot summers, very cold winters. So um, yeah. So the thing is, they filmed it in Montreal. They could have waited until there was, I don't know, snow or drizzle or grey or something that made it look a bit more like Sheffield. Just astonishing stuff. So yeah, that's... But again, I'll withhold for the time being because we're going to do positives first. 
Okay, a climatic disgrace. So, anyway, it cuts to seven years earlier, and here we see a young Joe Elliott unhappy in a factory job. On his way out, he meets Def Leppard's original guitarist, Pete Willis, on the way home. Then they end up in Joe's living room or his lounge um, with Pete Willis and also with Rick Savage and Tony Kenning, who's the original drummer. He's auditioning to join the band. He's auditioning as a guitarist. Instead of getting in as a guitarist, he impresses with his singing. And then at that point, Joe decides that the band should be called Def Leppard and he pulls out a poster that he has made up for this fictional band. And what you actually then get is Tony Kenning changing the spelling of Def Leppard to the correct spelling to the spelling as we see it now. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen the Motley Crue film, uh, but exactly the same thing happens in the Motley Crue film where, you know, they put it, they, they write it down in front of them then someone else comes over and rubs a bit out and they change the spelling of the crew to the crew the way it is. So it seems that that might be a trope of the rock biopic, someone changing the name um, on screen to an incorrect rock spelling name. There okay, is at so- least some some form of factual truth here, isn't there, uh, in terms of Tony Kenny being involved in the changing of the spelling? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I shall see when you actually go through, when you read it as this plot summary that we're going to go through now, the majority of this is all accurate. It's when yeah. you get into the uh, <laughs> get into the detail <laughs> that it becomes wholly inaccurate. But we'll, we'll come to that later. Okay, so Joe's in, he's singing. The band have called themselves Def Leppard. In the next scene, we see a nervous Steve Clark being sick into the toilet pre-audition. He then impresses during an audition and he becomes the second guitarist. Tony Kenning is then seen leaving the band due to girlfriend issues. And we see a young Rick Allen join the band as well. Now, all during this time, we see Joe being shown very much as the main driving force behind the band and always striving for perfection. And Paul, we must come on to this depiction of Joe later on because it, it's, it's mad, but we'll come to that later. Then Steve threatens to leave unless they play a gig. The band then played a successful gig at the Westfield School. And subsequent to this gig, Steve and Joe's parents are juxtaposed with Steve's father presented as a negative and critical force. And Joe's parents as being supportive and offering to provide funds to fund the first Def Leppard EP. We're halfway through, by the way. Blimey, that actually flew by. You're right. Just to sort of second the point you've made, that actually when you look through it like this, it does tell the story. So, yeah, n- no complaints so far. Yeah, and it's ve- in particular, it's very close to the BBC documentary from 1988. I think it's called Rock of mm. Ages. I'm pretty certain they've watched that and then taken all of the, the main points out of that and, and made a script around that. Now, it's probably worth reiterating if anyone's not seen that documentary, if they've not heard us talk about it before on here, it's available on YouTube and it is fantastic. It's really well worth watching. Yeah, and even though it's, you know, decades old now that's the definitive Def Leppard documentary for me in terms of it there's loads of detail in that it's really really good so I'm halfway through but I'm probably only about just about eighth of the way through the film this is where at this point Paul I sort of started losing the world to live providing so much detail so it becomes very summary based now next we see scenes of a troublesome and angry Pete Willis who is also regularly hitting the bottle the lefts are now hooked up with manager Peter Mensch and they're seen on a first successful tour of the United States. On returning from the United States, they sit around a dining room table reading reviews from British press, which are negative. But while they are reading the reviews, the phone rings and they are interrupted. And can you remember who's on the phone, Paul? 
It's Mutt Lang, the real hero of this film. <laughs> it is. It's Mutt Lang. And Mutt Lang says to them, I will produce your next album, which will be high and dry. And also he tells them to ignore those nasty bad reviews. Good old Mutt coming in. Right. This scene is then followed with them in the studio recording high and dry with Mutt. And Mutt is shown as driving the band very hard. Later on, we then see Pete drunk on stage and him walking off stage to find more drink. And after that, he's then sacked and replaced with Phil Collin. When Phil joins, there are initial tensions between Steve and Phil, with Steve seeing himself as the inferior player. But Phil's amenable character and banter smooths this over and they become great mates and drinking buddies. And the words Terror Twins are then mentioned about 20 to 30 times in the rest of the film. We then see Pyromania is released and it is successful and a successful tour follows it. Steve Clark worries about how they will follow it up. And then at this point, we then return to the opening scene that is at the beginning of the film, which is Rick's accident. But this time we see the aftermath and after the crash, we see Rick standing in the field having lost his arm. Okay, what then follows is a mix of Rick's trauma, Rick being in hospital, his rehabilitation. And at the same time, mixed in with this is a continuation of the story of Steve's increasing drinking, uh, becoming out of hand and his problems at the same time. It's quite interesting the way those two things are interwoven. So the film culminates with the return of Mutt to finish the recording of Hysteria and the left playing a large show in which a duly rehabilitated Rick returns the hero and the show is a great, great success. It then finishes, we have short written accounts of the band after this point, one of which references the fact that Steve died in 1991 and also goes on about Vivian Campbell replacing Steve and the band's ongoing success to this day. That is a plot summary of the film. Have I missed out anything glaring that you want to mention at this point? Not at this point. We will get there. That's the plot summary. Everyone knows what happens in the film now. What are the positives in this film for you? What did you like about it? Okay, so the script is largely dreadful, obviously, but there are three lines in it that I really, really enjoyed that got a genuine laugh out of me. I'm not sure if I was laughing at them. I'm not sure if I was laughing with them or at them, but they made me laugh. So there's a bit where, um, you know, we have the Yoko Ono, sort of figure, Tony Kenning's girlfriend, an extremely sexist portrayal of the female character who's, who's like I said, taking that Yoko role. And as he leaves, I think it's Pete yells after him when he decides to leave the band, he yells after him, I hope he's better in the sack than he was on the drum kit, which I enjoyed. I thought that was a childish little put down from, uh, from Pete Willis. So yes, I enjoyed that bit. There's a fantastic bit when they're uh, they're on uh, they're in the US, I think it is, and this is as they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the trappings of sort of the rock and roll lifestyle are starting to uh, come come into their lives. And at one point, there's a, a set of sort of costumes being rolled past on a clothes rack, and one of them says, "We're going to need a bigger rack." To which one of the women in the front row, who's observing this sort of backstage area, exposes her tits and says, how's this rack? Which is an absolutely fantastic piece of scripting. And 
finally, this, this, I really enjoyed this. This is Rick in the hospital. There's a scene which I do want to come back to, which is where Steve brings a prostitute into the, into the hospital. And Rick says, uh, you know, he, he's disgusted by this. And he says, oh, I'll forget all about my arm and I've got crabs, which... So there's three really, really good lines in the film. So three good pieces of script in an otherwise terrible script. There was another bit that I liked in, in that scene as well, where Steve brings in, I don't know if it's a prostitute or a groupie, but he brings brings her into Rick. And um, just before that, he goes, he obviously doesn't know her name. And he goes, Rick, hair. Hey, Rick. I thought that was quite. I thought that. I thought that was actually quite funny. Again, terribly misogynistic, but that bit was that. That bit was actually a funny line, and I thought. Yeah. So uh, there's those, and then I did enjoy. There's there's a bit where the, they have where Rick auditions for the band, and he basically shows that he can drum in the styles of various different drummers, which was actually quite a nice little idea, anyway. And when he, he does an impression of Keith Moon as part of this and his Keith Moon impression is to basically wildly hammer the kit and then fall over which I did enjoy as well I thought that was very good it is a film that has at least two if not more montages and as we learned from Team America even Rocky had a montage and montages are just a general positive in a film so I'll go with that you can see I'm starting to scrape the barrel a little bit here well let me help you out let me help you out with a couple I got let me know if you agree with any of these or you think I am scraping the barrel um, as well. You talked about the rack of clothes earlier. I think one thing to get spot on in this is the clothing and the fashion as such. So, like, you know, we see um, Joe in early, like, 1980, and he's got that red and white striped top on that he's got on the Historia video when they play a top of the pops that is never actually um, scheduled. And then also... When Steve has his first audition in the Spoon Factory and he's there with his jeans on and he's got no top, but he's got a denim jacket on. There's an interview with Joe where he talk where he describes Steve looking really cool on his first interview in terms of like having like a really thin waist, having no top on and a, but a denim jacket just there um, over it and his jeans are like looking really cool. So they've really like nailed those bits of accurate fashion and that goes throughout you know like you see um during a pyromania tour you see phil with the black top on with like the white spots on that he's wearing on the fool and video and joe's wearing the 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 white vest with club on that he's wearing on the um the fool and video and then obviously later on on the stereo tour you know phil's got that plastic that black plasticky looking jacket on and things like this maybe i've just watched it around in your face and historia too many times but i must admit all of the things that they're wearing look spot on to the extent that I do wonder whether they got the actual clothes. So I thought that was a good bit of accurate detail as a Def Leppard fan that I that I enjoyed. So I thought that was good. Yeah, they likewise, you can see there's little bits of sort of research that have gone into this. I mean, possibly the bit you've just highlighted is more than a little bit. And there's a question I've got about that. I don't know whether you know anything about it, but before we get there, there's a in the final, what is supposed to represent the Donington gig that we get mm. later on, you know, the, the Monsters of Rock gig, uh, the movements of the band, we see an extended piece of the band live on stage. And I don't know how I'm quite going to describe this, but I can show you over the video we're watching each other on now. Like we get Sav doing his thing where he puts his hands above his eyes and looks out over the over the crowd. And that was just one example of where they really actually got some of the movements on stage really, really down pat. Yeah, they've lifted. I noticed that as well on that last scene. 
the redemption scene, you know, and uh, the, the big successful gig is that I think they've taken part of that shot for shot that are in the round in your face. And if you watch it, I think they actually intersperse a little bit of in your round in your face into the actual crowd footage. But they've very much done this, like the camera angles are the same as one of like sort of Steve Clark and where it's like, you know, like taken from below that. It looks like a reproduction totally of in the round in your face. So I think they got all of that bit like really good. That's like, and it, yeah, it's yeah. all that's all really accurate. I don't know what you mean about like the little movements. It's a bit where Joe Elliott's sort of is like jumping up and down, which you see in 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 the in your round in your face video. There's lots, there's loads of little bits in that last scene, particularly. I, you know, you talked about the clothes then earlier and so, like you sort of inferred that maybe they got their hands on the original clothing even. It is my recall, and tell me if I'm wrong about this or what you recall about it, that actually back in 2001, the band, or at least band management, did back this to some extent. There was, I'm sure there was cross-promotion, like there was stuff on the website and things like this. And I seem to recall the band did get behind it and promote it. Yeah, and it was certainly it was certainly signed off by them. And I think what it was is it was signed off by them. It had their backing, and then they saw how shit it was, and then he distanced himself from it like afterwards. And then since, it's uh, it's it's nothing to do with them. Did you have anything else that you thought was positive about it? I'd I'd really be scraping the barrel. So yeah, I think uh, I think I can move safely past these absolute scratching the ground okay. the fingernails parts. I've I've got two more. I've got two more positives. Okay, so this is less a positive, but it's a it potentially could have been really good. There's a scene. This is great. This is this film. It's potentially positive. It's not that positive, but this film, you know, that, that does. If that doesn't sum it up, I don't know what does. Brilliant. Go ahead. <laughs> At times, the part where Rick loses his arm, just a fleeting moment, it gets across how utterly, utterly, utterly terrible this is. Doesn't do it for most of the time, but now and again, just for like two seconds. It, it, it hits the right spot in terms of really making you realize how horrendous this was. And there's actually like a dream sequence in it where he's playing, he's playing the drum. So he's dreaming. So this is after he's had his arm reattached, but then they've had to take his arm off and he's, he's dreaming while he's under sedation. And in that dream, he's playing the drums and he's like playing faster and faster. And then you just see on his shoulder where his arm joins his shoulder, it just starts bleeding a little bit. And I was thinking, do you know what? If this was in the, like a proper film rather than a TV film and it was in the hands of a good director, that bit is quite horrific and is quite, quite a potent image. And I thought it was just on the brink there of actually sort of doing something a little bit creative and a little bit good and just sort of being less telling the story of Death Leopard by numbers. So I thought that bit was potentially good if it had been done a bit better. I was just going to say there's another bit that I think, I, I, well, I hope I'm not going to sort of speak over your bit, but I think there's another bit where they come somewhere close and it's when Steve and Lorelei are in the restaurant and I think they get somewhere near the type of tenderness that we need in the Steve character at that point in the story. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's a part where it's just, it's all played a little bit more sensitively and um, yeah, as I said, it's a little less by numbers one bit that is by numbers and very much a trope of these biopics but i did really enjoy you know the way you said you enjoyed a montage it's like montage and dead cliche but the great aren't who doesn't love a montage in rocky or, or or what have you but in this i like the bit where they're with mutt lang for the first time and 
they're recording bringing on the heartbreak and he's getting joe to sing higher and higher and they're all really unhappy with how it's going and then muck goes just wait there and he turns a knob here and moves a fader there and turns a little like you know sort of pushes a button there and then he plays it back and it sounds like really really good and they're dead surprised and they're like how did you do that and he's like no that's you guys i didn't do anything i although massively cheesy i did i did like that scene i thought that was good that was good i like that and that sort of sums up in a way quite well like the relationship between Mutt and Def Leppard, they are talented guys and what have you, but they just needed Mutt at that point to sound in the way that they wanted to sound to, yeah, to twiddle a few knobs and press a few buttons and uh, bring the sound together a little bit. So I, I did enjoy that scene, Paul. Does that make me a bad person? Not at all. I the, Mutt is the, the, I haven't got the actor's name to hand. I probably should have written that down, but the he's the best actor in the thing, uh, in the whole film. I think I think whenever he's on screen, he actually brings a little bit of authority to because we'll come on to the acting. Uh, he brings a bit of authority to affairs, I think, both in the character he's playing and in the way he portrays that character. Did you look into any of the actors are or the director? Because I started looking and then I just quickly it seemed that none of them had really done much before or gone on to do do much afterwards. Or so I sort of gave up. Did did you find anything else out? No, I had exactly the same experience as you. The fellow who plays Joe has gone on to appear in Motherland, which is a very successful television comedy here in the UK. So, he, he well, I say he had a role in it. He was in one episode of it, I think. Okay. It wasn't a recurring role. But where the actors are from does play into something else that you and I are going to talk about uh, a little further down the line. Right, later on, I've got a question, which is the reverse of the one I've just asked you, which is tell me about the bad things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think accents might come up at that point, um, I'm suggesting. Okay, so we've done the plot summary. We've done the positives, okay? 454 people on average gave this a five-star review um, on Amazon. 13 million people watched it, right? So people found something to like in it. One of the undeniable facts in it, though, is that it is factually incorrect <laughs> many, many times. So... I thought about how we could do this, Paul. We could literally go through it and sort of say, well, that was wrong and that was wrong and that was wrong. But I thought we'd do something a little bit different is we'll go through some of the things that were wrong and we could talk about whether that actually matters or not because I don't know necessarily about whether a film has to be 100% accurate because at the end of the day, it's got to create a narrative arc and it's got to entertain and what have you. So what we're going to do is I've got 10 for you here, Paul. So we're going to go through them and then you can jump off and talk about whatever you want and we can talk more widely around it. So let's go through these. These are some inaccuracies in Hysteria, the Def Leppard story. The question is, bothered or not bothered? Okay. So we've touched on this. (laughs) I think we know you're bothered, but we'll we'll do it again. Okay. The film opens with Rick and his girlfriend, uh, Miriam, driving what is supposed to be just outside Sheffield. Now we see a road sign and the road sign shows the M25 as being two miles away. The M25 is the circular motorway that goes around London, approximately 200 miles away-ish from uh, Sheffield. So that road sign, those are the things that you were saying earlier about it just simply not looking anything like being around by Sheffield. Bothered or not bothered? In terms of the film's narrative, 
And to any lay person watching it, it actually doesn't matter. So from that point of view, not bothered. Where it absolutely bothers me, and funny enough, again, you've not mentioned the weather there, and I, 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 it's the third time I've mentioned it, but the, the road sign thing just compounded that for me because it also shows Manchester as being in the same direction as Sheffield driving along the A57, which for those people from outside the UK, the A57 is called, it's known as Snake Pass. And it's called Snake Pass because of the way it winds along the landscape. Viewed from above, it looks like a snake wriggling along on its belly. It's a road that I've driven many, many times in my life between Manchester and Sheffield because it's a way of avoiding the M1, which is the motorway that is nearby, not the M25. And the reason this bothers me, it'll sound so pedantic here to so many people, is that it's not difficult to get right. It's just a rank bad piece of research. And because it's there at the start of the film, its position elevates it to something because my ability to to suspend disbelief here and just absorb this as a piece of entertainment has already been massively compromised. So regrettably, you can hear possibly the frustration in my voice. It ends up really bothering me when it ought not to matter narrative-wise. So bothered. Bothered. Yeah, and I agree... Yeah. yeah, I agree for exactly the same reason in terms of it's because it's the opening scene. So it sets a precedent of sloppiness straight away that I don't I exactly. don't appreciate. Um, <laughs> but if, if, if it was if it was later on, then maybe I wouldn't be bothered. But it's just the fact that it's like, right, like I I must admit, I can't remember knowing this Def Leppard was film was coming out and then waiting to see it at the time. I think I might have saw it a few years um, after the event. But if I had known about it and I had been waiting for it, I would have been really eager and would have been really keen. And I can just imagine myself watching it at the time and then just seeing that. And that would and, and immediately get under my skin. But you're right, it doesn't affect the narrative. It's not that important. Most people wouldn't even notice it. But if you see something, it's hard to unsee it and stop it, stop bothering you, um, essentially. So no, I agree with you. Bothered. Okay, right. Next one. In the same scene, just before the crash, okay, at the beginning, we see Rick snorting some sort of substance while driving and just before the car crashes. Bothered or not bothered? Quite immensely bothered. This is legitimately insulting. And it's not the only time this film is legitimately insulting to its subject matter. On top of it being insulting to Rick Allen himself, it doesn't make any sense from a point of view of making this film. Because what this film goes on to try and do is treat Rick as a sympathetic character. It's an incredibly sympathetic story you're trying to tell. So why would you have him coked up and so heavily responsible for the crash that robs him of, well, of his job effectively before we go on to get the redemption story? Surely what you want to do is try and build as much sympathy here as you can. Now, I get they're doing a little bit of he's going down the rock and roll lifestyle thing and look at how destructive it can be. But I just don't think it works in the context of how how this film tells its story. I think what you needed there was sympathy for Rick. And at that point, and it's not just the sympathy you need from a narrative point of view. It legitimately offends me 
the way he's portrayed in the seconds that lead up to the incident that completely changed his life and could have killed him. It's it's an awful, awful thing. I'm completely bothered. I agree entirely. It's, it's completely criminal and probably libelous. But I think you well, probably never followed it up because only like because not many people since have really seen it or because it's derided so much. But what was the other one or two things that you said did something um, equal equal to this? I think there's a lot in the story of Steve and in relation to his his parents and the relationship with his parents that how much of it's based in fact i did a bit of research around this and i couldn't find all that much you may know more than me on it i found snippet i mean i'll I'll jump to i've got the quote here about steve and his relationship with his dad here we go so this is from phil collins book and this is the one thing i could find from phil collins book Steve had to prove his manhood to his dad all the time that he had the values of a Sheffield steelworker underneath his golden splendor. That's the closest I could find anywhere that would justify the way that Steve's dad is such a looming and awful presence in this film. And bearing in mind, we're talking about the father of a deceased man. I found that very, very insulting. I found it insulting to Steve's story. There's there's other little bits along the way, like you've mentioned. Well, I, th- I think I think it's something you, uh, you you maybe mentioned to me previously. But this business of how Steve is not the person in this film who fixes photograph, for example. Mm. So there's just little things like that that, to a fan, they bother you. Yeah, they probably some of them make narrative sense even and you could back it up from some degree but there's two things that really stand out oh and we mentioned it already the the fact that steve brings rick a whether it's a groupie a prostitute uh, he brings rick a comely young lass into hospital and it just paints steve in such a horrendous light it bothered me immensely yeah and what's interesting as well is because obviously I've sat through this with like a pen and paper and I'm like writing all of these things down and what have you. And my list of um, factual uh, inaccuracies in this goes above 20. (laughs) You'd be glad to know we're not doing 20. But interestingly, next to none of them are about Steve and none of them are about Steve's personal life. And I think what's interesting is there's nothing out there really about Steve's personal life and his private life and everything that was happening to him because the band have done a really, really good job of keeping that away from everyone and keeping that private and keeping that um, secret. And I think that's why some of the Steve stuff doesn't sit very well because you would imagine the makers of the film have got that lack of knowledge as well and they're just having to take a punt and go, right, we're going to depict them like this. And I think probably more than any other character and including Steve's family, there's probably no other character where they're just putting a finger in the air and guessing that this is what he might have been like and there's nothing really to back it up. There's no evidence. But in a way, that's kudos to the band, I think, for pretty much keeping all of that to themselves and keeping Steve's private life to themselves as well. But yeah, as a, as a consequence, yeah, there's some, <laughs> there's, there's some terrible um, depictions in there. Okay. Going on to a slightly less serious one. Number three, or is it less serious? Okay. <laughs> Rick as in Rick Allen is shown to be playing on a recording of the Def Leppard EP, but you know, and I know Paul, it was actually recorded before Rick joined the band and it is Frank Noon who plays on the EP. Bothered or not bothered? I'll say not bothered on the basis that you, you do have to be kind of 
super fan sort of level to to I think allow that stuff to to get under your skin. So it serves that it serves the narrative well enough, and I'll say not bothered. I agree, not bothered. Number four, Mutt Lang is American in this film, but he's actually South African. And again, going back to that documentary from 1988, the BBC one, I think that's the only interview you've, you've probably ever seen of Mutt Lang. And he's clearly, I can't do a South African um, accent. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he's clearly South African in it. So Mutt Lang is American, but he's not. He's South African. Bothered or not bothered? If I was South African, I'd be bothered because that's one of the one of your great country people. But no, it's not majorly offensive in telling the narrative as a whole. So I shall say no. I agree as well. Not bothered. Okay, next, number five. In the film, Phil is recruited after the band spot him playing live, and Joe asks him if he can learn 17 songs in three days. So the reality is they didn't actually just spot Phil playing live after they sacked Pete Willis. They knew him and they were already friends with Phil and he had been since around um, 1980. So they didn't discover him, discover him in this way. And while there is some truth in the fact that Joe did ask him if he could learn to play 17 songs in three days, it didn't actually happen at this point. It actually happened during the High and Dry tour when Pete was being problematic and they were thinking of sacking him at that point. And they were looking to see if they could get cover if they did sack him. But in the end, they didn't sack him. So um, that conversation did take place, but it didn't take place at that time. So the whole recruitment of Phil is incorrect in Hysteria, the Death Leopard story. By the way, the reason I'm giving it its full title every time, Paul, is because it is obviously better than citizen kane uh, so you've got to give it you've got to give it the due respect so anyway bothered or not bothered i'll say not bothered but but it's incredibly convenient that they do end up in that club isn't it it's an awful piece of story writing that they couldn't come up with a better way to introduce the character of phil into the film and i did want to just use this as an aside just to say to uh, to everyone who's listening that i recently picked up uh, an, an original pressing of Sheer Greed, which is the first girl album that Phil plays on. I found that in a little record shop in Whitby on the northeast coast, and it is well worth a listen. It, they had something about them, definitely, that band. And obviously a few of them went on to quite big careers. So uh, just wanted to, as an aside, if you've never listened to Sheer Greed, Phil's recording with Girl, do get out there and listen. Well worth it. Okay, so to conclude, Not, not Bothered. bothered. Not bothered. I think I might be bothered, you know, Paul. I Go think, on. I think I'm putting that there with the M25 being two miles away. It's just a basic fact that maybe you could get right. Oh, I don't know. What this ties into for me is I, I went away and just had a little look around what film critics generally think of. Are we supposed to say biopics or biopics? What's the correct way to pronounce that word? Oh, I would have said biopics, but now that you said biopics... I don't know. Is it mandatory or mandatory to say it that way? I don't know, Paul. Tomato, tomato. I'll go with biopics yeah. uh, for now. The, they, they are not biographies. They are supposed to function primarily as entertainment. That's the general consensus of the film critics I read around around this sort of thing. So where I got 
what really drives me mad about the opening thing is that it just sets you up on, like I said, it puts you in the, on the wrong footing straight away. And then there's the stuff about Rick and Steve, which you mentioned is actually just insulting to people who mean a great deal to me. So therefore, I, I kind of take that one quite personally. The Phil stuff, ultimately, I don't think it's Phil's story that you're telling here. True. The story you're telling is Stephen Rick's primarily with you know, there's a lot of Joe thrown in there. I know we're going to talk about the portrayal of, of Joe. So because it's not Phil's story, and we can debate the rights and wrongs of that, certainly, but because it's not Phil's story, I think that's why I'm prepared to let this go because it doesn't necessarily impact on the Stephen Rick story. Okay, Paul, I can tell you work in sales and you've persuaded and influenced me there. So I am now not bothered as well. Okay, so good stuff. We can move on to the next one. Number six, Steve and Phil are shown to be working on the photograph riff. Steve plays a different version to what we know it as, and it's Phil who nails the correct one and gets the riff of photograph. That's incorrect because the riff of photograph, photograph was written, and the one thing that they couldn't get was the riff to it. And it's clearly documented that the person who comes up with the riff is Steve Clark and they all run in and he plays it and they're made up and it's brilliant and it's great. And it's like this way, it's like an immense uh, moment. So in the film, this is the bit where Phil first joins the band and they use this scene of coming up with the riff of photograph as the one to show the inferiority complex as presented by the film that Steve Clark has where he's um, threatened by Phil's uh, arrival. So that's the context in which it happens. So there is a narrative context in terms of doing it, but it's wrong. So bothered or not bothered? A couple of things on this. First of all, it definitely robs Steve. I, I am. I mentioned this earlier. I am right. This is Photograph is the I fixed it song, isn't it? That's the, the, the Steve Clark, I fixed it moment. Yes, I do believe if you listen to episode five, of Def Leppard, we we do cover the I fixed it moment. Yes, yes, we do. Tell you, tell you, tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm the salesperson. That is marvelous stuff. Well done, Neil. I've got a question about the licensing of the songs in this film because the live performance in this film uses the real photograph for it. We can hear certainly in the version that you and I watch. We both watch the same YouTube version. Earlier stuff in the film uses absolutely execrable re-records of early Def Leppard songs. And tying in with this, you also get a moment early on where Joe sings Purple Haze, where the overdubbing on his vocal is so, so bad. It's so difficult to explain to people if they've not heard it. He's so clearly not singing live in the room that he's in. It is so clearly dubbed on top and it isn't very good either by the way, because it's the actor doing it and the actor is not a particularly great singer. So and then they all have to pretend that it's brilliant and you just listen to it and gone, it's not very good. <laughs> so I was interested. So they sing Purple Haze and they use real photograph, the real photograph and they, they overdub and re-record other stuff. Do you know why? Did you, do you have any idea what the licensing agreement or arrangement was on this? I only assume that you pay per song and like, you know, they paid for photograph, they paid for pour some sugar on me and then the rest they had to just, you know, like, so they get like some Peruvian panpipers <laughs> to play or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you just had to, to get it in. So, no, um, I don't know. So we'll be bothered by that, Paul, or not bothered. Yeah. The, the well, whole photograph riffing. Ultimately not 
But actually, no, you know what? No, this one does t- t- go into bothered because I don't like how it robs Steve of that of that moment. That's a big moment for Steve. It's used in the film, The Exchange. I mean, if you watch one part of this film, go and watch The Exchange between Phil and Steve at this moment. It is toe-curlingly embarrassing. It's awful stuff. It's so badly performed. It's so badly shot. There's a bit where Steve's fingers are, I think it might be this scene, it may be another scene, but there's a bit where Steve's fingers are doing like an Eddie Van Halen style tap on the neck. And we get the sound, the sound sounds amazing, but it's obviously not the actor that's playing the guitar because of the way it's cut. So the direction on it is just despicable and it should never have made the screen, even if it was just made for TV. It's, it's unforgivably bad. A disgrace. So, okay, we're, we're both going bothered on that one then, because you know what? It's yeah. like it's a, it's a key breakthrough song that totally is down to Steve's riff, and it shows him not putting the riff together. So, no, I'm I'm fully <laughs> I'm fully I nearly I nearly said the f word there, Paul. I'm fully flipping bothered me. So, um, bothered. Seven. Rick is conscious and has seemingly days with his arm being reattached before they have to amputate it. Now, I was toying over whether to include this one or not because this is from memory but i couldn't actually find it again but i'm i swear i remember seeing an interview with joe elliott where he actually says about rick was put into a coma he reattached his arm then it got infected or didn't take and he had to take it off again and he actually makes a point of saying i'm glad all of that happened while he was still in a coma so he didn't actually know until after the events that it had happened while in the film you know, they put the arm back on. There's a good 20 minutes, 25 minutes of, you know, chat. And you know, the whole scene with them um, bringing in the prostitutes and lo- loads of stuff all happens when the arm's back on again and they think he's going to be all right. So bothered or not bothered? So this comes back to, sorry for not giving the one word answer here, but it was just to come back to the biopic, biopic point about what a biopic is supposed to do versus what biography is supposed to do. Have you seen the TV programme Chernobyl? Yes, brilliant. It's magnificent. For I don't know whether it had a broadcast outside of the UK or not. It appeared on Sky Atlantic. Do you know? I think if it was on Sky Atlantic, it'll be everywhere pretty much. Okay, good. So if anyone's not seen it, try and seek it out. It's absolutely tremendous. It's a dramatisation of what happened at Chernobyl in 1986. And in that, for just as an example of where you can manipulate truth in a completely inoffensive way. There is a character in that television program that that represents a a number of characters, but they put one character in because it's so much easier to tell the story with one character rather than multiple people. So strictly speaking, it's historical inaccuracy, but it's done in order to propel the core narrative. So it makes complete sense from a filmmaking perspective and it doesn't offend anybody and it doesn't offend anything in the process. The problem with this film is that we get instances like Rick snorting the coke, which is such an obvious one. That is a historic inaccuracy that also doesn't serve a narrative purpose. People crash cars without snorting cocaine. They didn't need to include it. So if you are going to introduce inaccuracies in your story, they have to serve your core narrative and they have to avoid offence. Chernobyl is a great example of how it can be done. Now, I don't know if this part with Rick necessarily ruins this film, but this film is practically unruinable. So dreadful, is it? 
So you have to consider if you were telling this story, what would you do with Rick during this period? And I, I really think it comes down to per, sort of personal choice there. If you kind of you were a filmmaker thing, because I can see how Rick being awake and being aware of losing his arm is a more compelling story than not being awake and not being aware he's losing his arm. But I obviously find it distasteful because, like you've said, Neil, my understanding has always been exactly as you've just described. So bothered or not bothered, it's a real 50-50 flip of a coin, this. I think, honest to goodness, if I was making this film, I might have Rick awake in order to propel this narrative forward. And even as I'm saying that, you can hear me hesitating because it's, it's, very, it's a very uncomfortable subject to talk about anyway, isn't it? You know, what Rick went through. So I, I'm kind of going to sit on the fence on this one. I'll let you sway me. Are you bothered or not bothered? I'm bothered because, you know, this, like you said, it's Rick's story. I can see the arguments for if you want to heighten the trauma, then him going through that would heighten the trauma but i don't think you need to heighten the trauma because you know he's lost his fucking arm like you know what i mean so um so therefore i don't think you need to do it and that's the one basic thing you need to get right so i'm gonna go bothered i'm gonna go bothered okay you've done me i'll join you okay right i think the other ones now are a little bit you know they're a little bit more chilled these ones and we'll go through these ones um quite quick so number eight is a bit like the photograph one in terms of about the origin of pour some sugar on me the film shows a song written before the return of mutt lang to the hysteria sessions and the origin of the song being steve and phil working on the riff so that's to say the song comes from the riff so this is like the reverse of the photograph scene where they're struggling to get it right but this time it's steve who fixes it so obviously pour some sugar on me and this is this is pretty well known was the last song that was written for hysteria and the song came about from joe having the chorus muss overhearing it and then you know the rest is history and the other parts of the song um, were added so bothered or not bothered I'm going to say not bothered on the basis that we're not telling the story of Hysteria, the album, as we said earlier. I think if we were, it'd be a huge issue. Um, I'm going to say not bothered. You? I'll go not bothered. Okay. Number nine, right. Two Steps Behind, which is obviously from the Retroactive album in 1993, that obviously featured as a B-side in 1992 without the orchestra. That is played over the montage of Rick learning to play the drums again in 1984 so there's an anachronism with the montage and the song there bothered or not bothered you did say the magic word you said montage so not bothered i agree not bothered i think that works quite well using that song as well so happy days i don't know lyrically what what it's got to do with it but it it sort of works okay doesn't seem massively um, out of place to me do you then play that again at the end as like is the end song so actually, that's three songs he played for. He paid for Two Steps Behind, Pour Some Sugar On Me and Photograph, and the rest. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that's it. The budget was blown. Yeah, just got some ringers in. Right, okay. Last but not least. Uh, you mentioned this earlier because you referred to this as the Donington concert at the end, though it doesn't look obviously anything like Donington. So number 10, the big successful return concert and victory scene is in an anonymous indoor arena with, quote, 50 to 60,000 people. 
And I think it's agreed that the first big successful return is seen as the Donington gig, Monsters of Rock, 1986, in which Def Leppard, I think, were third on the bill. So this is all about the return of Rick in front of many, many people. And it's not shown to be Donington. It's shown to be what looks like in America in a big indoor arena at an actual Def Leppard gig. Bothered or not bothered? I'm going to say not bothered because I do think it serves its purpose of representing spiritually the Donington gig. So I'm comfortable going with it. I agree as well. Not not bothered. So excellent. Okay, then. So we've gone through a load of inaccuracies there. I think we've had a mixed bag in terms of what we were bothered by and where we, where we weren't um, bothered so much. Okay. So, Paul, it's at this point I'm going to give you the floor. I know it's the floor that I've made you wait alongside for about 40 minutes or so now okay i'm going to give you the floor to tell me are there any remaining burning criticisms of this film that you would like to talk about neil we need to talk about accents (laughs) okay yeah the way i've written i've got this written down and i've written down the name of certain people who appear in the film and i've put in brackets next to them what i think the accent they're doing sounds like. So I don't know how you want to do this. If I throw you to example, what accent do you think Steve has? Well, you know what? At this point, I've picked out a clip. and I'll play it down the microphone now. If it sounds okay, we'll leave it like that. If it doesn't sound okay, then I'll edit it in afterwards, right? And I want the listeners to answer this because put it this way, it does not sound remotely like a Sheffield accent. And this is Steve, okay? So this is this, this is the scene in which Steve is uh, told by Phil. Uh, Phil. Phil's just bought the watch and crashed the car. And he's thinking, I'm going to stop drinking. And he tells Steve, and Steve's not happy about it. And, um, I mean, he doesn't sound like this throughout the whole film, but he, he <laughs> sounds like this in this one scene where he may have actually been drunk, the actor. I don't know. So I'll just, pu- I'll just play it. I'm not the one with the watch in car. <laughs> Steve, look, you want to turn my trays on everyone, fine. Maybe you got a drinking problem, okay, I don't. I'm not so sure that's true. Oh, hell, the mighty psychic. He gets clean and all of a sudden the rest of us look a whole lot dirtier, is that it? Or maybe that's the kind of superior crap he was thinking all along. Oh, look, drink, don't drink. Quit the band, don't. It's all the same to me, pal. It's your problem, not mine. Drink, don't drink. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like an episode of Father Ted, doesn't it? Absolutely. Tell, tell people what Father Ted is in case they don't know, Paul. <laughs> Mid-1990s, Father Ted was a comedy, a real cult comedy over here in the UK. Uh, a surrealist thing based around the lives of some Irish priests. And they all sound like Steve just did. <laughs> he, I did actually get so far, he is actually Irish. I did, so I looked into that as well, yeah. And you know what? I don't want to slag the fella off because that's not nice. But the bottom line is you're an actor, you're a professional, you are being paid to do a job. And you pointed out as well, it's not as if it's like that all the time. It slips in particular in that scene. That's the one I would have picked out. But it does, it slips, it wobbles. It's so bad. And for anyone not listening again, if you, well, listen to Joe Elliott. He's still got to this day. So Sav actually quite a, a quite a straight up Yorkshire Sheffield accent. That's what Steve Clark should sound like, not what Neil just played you there. 
Okay, what were the other ones that you were going to talk about? Okay, so I think there's a point in which Sav sounds Geordie. Um, there's, I wanted to talk about Phil. What do you think Phil's accent is in this film? Phil, Phil to me sounds Australian in this. But there is a weird thing with the Cockney accent and the Australian accent where they are weirdly close to each other. Um, that might be an historical thing, but he, he very much sounds Australian most of the time, I would say. Is he Australian? Oh, do you know, maybe we, we could maybe have to look that up and you can fill in here with like a fact check because no, I didn't check. I did check the Irish one, which suggests to me that therefore he's not Australian, the guy who plays Phil. Uh, uh, listeners, Neil is just frantically tapping into Google to try and find out where the actor see. is from. And just on that point, when I met people whilst backpacking across the world, I was traveling with uh, some. I'd say Cockneys, they were Southerners. And people who we'd meet who were not from the UK would occasionally think these people were Australian. So it is a fair point Neil makes. He's from Houston, Texas, the actor. Esteban Powell. Wonderful name, absolutely incredible. But I I think it's safe to say that he did his best, but he failed. There's two others that I just quickly have to pick on. The policeman who races into the field when Rick is is in there, he he has one of the, the worst pieces of scripting in the entire film. He comes in and he says, um, I am an off-duty policeman. May I be of assistance? And it's just worth going back to listen to it because it's supposed to be a clipped, received pronunciation British accent. What comes out? I have absolutely not. I don't know how you describe it. And the same thing applies to what I think are the worst set of accents, even worse than the Steve one in the entire film. And it's Joe's mum and dad. Because I honestly can't tell you what the accent is, because it's nothing I recognise from the UK, and I don't recognise it from I don't recognise it in English from anywhere in the world. Yeah, and I think accents is probably like a little bit like the weather in Britain, where you know it's a big deal to us, and it's probably not a big deal to anyone outside of Britain, because obviously accents are very, very closely linked to sort of identity um in britain and there are so many different accents and i mean like me and you paul i don't know if we sound similar or not or people can hear that we've got quite distinctly different accents but we live probably about i'm in liverpool you're in manchester what about 30 miles away 30 miles away yeah yeah about 30 miles away i could actually drive i live just off a motorway i could drive for 10 minutes to saint helens and people sound completely different to me so Britain's a weird place where there's a lot of sort of accents and where we've all got a very attuned ear to accents. So accents being incorrect is really is really accentuated to us. I don't know if this is just the audio version of the M25 sign and it doesn't bother anyone else, but surely you can tell they're no good. Because if you're a Def Leppard fan, you know what Phil Collins sounds like. You know what the rest of the band sound like. They don't sound anything. <laughs> they don't no, sound anything. And, and, you know and that's my issue because I think this is something that anybody could identify. I don't think it's something where, but you, you are absolutely right to make the point around accents and what have you and how tied in they are to, to, to sort of identity politics and social situations in the UK. But even without knowing any of that, you would be watching this and be aware that you're watching bad acting. It's as straightforward as that. And that's it, isn't it? A bad accent immediately makes you think bad acting, which immediately does what you said earlier about it. It 
removes your inability to suspend belief and be like you know sort of sucked into the film it breaks down that fourth wall very much it's like i'm not watching a movie here. i'm watching people acting badly in a movie is is exactly how you <laughs> exactly how that. you see it give me some more bad stuff paul come on let's let rip now some of these will be quite short but there was something we're going back to rick in the car did you notice what rick is wearing he's wearing a black leather jacket i know he puts in pyromania on cassette i can't i can't remember well, anything else so earlier you were very very correctly complimentary about some of the costume choices how likely do you think it is that on new year's eve 1984 rick allen was wearing a Def leopard t-shirt unlikely paul what sort of person goes out with it, it it's like for uk listeners it would be like mo salah nipping to the chippy in his liverpool shirt it's it, just something a human being would not do. Right. So that made me laugh. And the fact that also, of, of course, he's listening to his own music because that's what musicians do. They get in their car and they put their own albums on. Just so stupid. So, so needlessly stupid and just so unbelievably crap. Just that, yeah, that really bothered me. Um, Westfield School. In fact, no, sorry, before I come to Westfield School, I'll stick with Rick here because... You kind of mentioned, you alluded earlier to how it gets almost close in the hospital scene, you know, around the arm and you get this sense of how truly tragic it is. But the makeup job that is done around Rick's arm being severed in that field, it did make me sit and think, my God, how must Rick himself have felt if he ever saw this? It's so badly done. And I know, well... I know they didn't have an awful lot of money, but I think I could go around the corner to Manchester University and I could go into the art college or whatever at Manchester University and I could pay a student 50 quid and I think they could mop me up something significantly better than what we get on screen at this point. It's really poor. It, it, it is, and it's particularly when it, it cuts to his actual arm on the floor. You, you don't need to do that. You can see that his arm isn't connected to him anymore. You, you don't then need to see the arm on the floor to appreciate the fact that he's lost his arm. One, play devil's advocate, and the one bit that I think they do get right in this, and again, this is why I'm convinced he watched that 1988 documentary, is what he says. And because Rick said that, you know, when the nurse comes running to him, he said something along the lines of, I'm a drummer in a famous band. Like he, they, they were his actual words. He were, he was in shock and he did say that. So they do get that. They do get that bit right. But yeah, I think it definitely does suffer there from um, probably a poor budget and therefore the, um, the effects that come with that. But obviously you can be a bit more creative in the way you, it's what you don't show as well, isn't it, Paul? You know what I mean? It's like, like Jaws. So why did they ever show the shark? Cause it doesn't look very good. Um, or they don't show it that much. Right. And at and least that had a, at least that had a John Williams score to sort of support it. We we mentioned earlier about the use of music in this film. It's a film about a band, and the use of music in it is absolutely terrible, as we've already pointed out. Um, I did just touch on the. I've only got a couple more of these because I I, I could go on all night. So I'll just I'll just a couple more on these. Um, the Westfield School crowd is a wonderful historical inaccuracy they are ecstatic and they all happen to be incredibly attractive young women because of course they're incredibly attractive young women it's a rock band this is what this thing is all about it's so so far removed from what the actual truth of that first gig at westfield school was it's 
just such a trope. Again, it's just a bad piece of filmmaking. It's not good storytelling. Yeah, and it's funny. I don't. I wouldn't say this is necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know. If this <laughs> this was something that you've picked up on. Is that in any film like this or any band film, you're gonna have a scene in which one member of the band really impresses the rest of the band and they all they're all shown looking at each other with side eyes and you know open mouth for this that oh my god we need to get this person in the band it's it's funny because it happens with joe when he's single purple haze and listen joe's a great singer and we all love him and everything but there's no way i mean we've heard bits of on through the night and we know what joe says about his voice at that time but there's a bit where he, he sings and it's like they're all blown away by his um, voice and like so you get it there you then get it with steve they're then blown away by steve now i think they were actually blown away by steve you then get it with rick auditioning they're all blown away by um, rick and then you get it when they're watching <laughs> phil on the stage they're all blown away by phil and all i'm thinking is poor sav Sav's the only one in this film. He doesn't get, he, he's barely in it for the start. And he's the only one who doesn't get shown playing the bass and everyone going, oh, that's amazing. You know what I mean? It's like Oscar Pistorius or someone. Do you know what I mean? It's like Sav gets nothing. But to see that same scene, you know what? Like you said, it's Steve and Rick's story. Save it for Steve and Rick or just one of them. But when you see the same thing happen four times, you're like, it's a bit much. But that made, that made me laugh as opposed to, that was where it's so bad it's good as opposed to it's yeah. like you know like offensive <laughs> like some of the other parts of it so effectively on the decision not to include much of sav it sort of makes sense given the kind of the story you're trying to tell again but i have to make one final point before i mean we've not talked about joe yet and I, I, that that will come into discussing what perhaps you could do with it but this is a really sensitive thing to have to talk about. So I, I hope when I make this point, I, listeners understand that I'm talking from a filmmaking perspective. I'm not talking about the, the what, what happened in real life. In this film, we're telling Rick and Steve's story. That we've established, that you and I agree on. That's what the story this film is telling. How can you tell Steve Clark's story if he doesn't die? I just think that somewhere along the line, the filmmakers chickened out effectively. Yeah. They couldn't handle that level of gravitas. And what you end up with is something that I considered to be offensive because the film ends. We've had the redemptive story arc for Rick and the band are back on stage. And then in the closing credits, you mentioned it earlier, in the closing credits, we later learn that Steve Clark died couple of years later or whatever, and was replaced by Vivian Campbell. And that is how Steve Clark's death is covered in a film that attempts to tell Steve Clark's story. Diabolical. Yeah, I I, I agree. It, it, that's one of the, the really bad parts of the film when it completely gets it wrong. And don't get me wrong, I'm not blind to the fact that there is a difficulty, which we'll come to in a minute, in terms of telling the Def Leppard story, in terms of, you know, it's not the story of Freddie Mercury, which is what the Queen one is. It's not the story of Jim Morrison, which the Doors film is. It's not the story of debauchery, which is what the Motley Crue film is. 
the Death Leopard story is quite a difficult one to tell because there's two tragic figures in it. And to sort of tell both of those stories at the same time is really difficult. And where do you cut it off and, and all of that? But you're right. For so much of it to be about Steve, for them to take so much license in the way in which they want to portray Steve in not a very good light, let's be honest, and with no evidence of that. And then just, you know, there's just like literally like 12 words at the end tagged on to the end of the film. It is very bad. But on a lighter note, let's finish off talking about the bad stuff. Let's let's talk about the present the presentation of Joe Elliott as uh, like a demented seven year old in this film and <laughs> how just mad it is. <laughs> right. So um he has a good line at one point where we because Pete is a bit jealous of Joe coming into the band and we get Pete's a bit wary and when we see we see how Pete is also starting to drink more. And at one point he gets in a big blow up with Joe and he says, This is my band. And Joe says, no, Pete, it's ours. And Joe is portrayed as the driving force throughout this film, with the support of Mort in it. But there's a point at which his character seems to fall off a moral cliff. And it's when they're dealing with the problems that Steve is having, because Joe cannot face up to what it is Steve is going through. And he just wants to get him up on stage. That's where he's his best kind of thing. And he doesn't seem to be taking Steve's problems at all seriously. And I, so I, I, as I was, I was watching it, I was writing a note thinking, I think Joe is supposed to be the hero of this film. But this is a funny way of telling this story if he is supposed to be the hero of this film. And it is not at all fair historically of course, because we know full well what Joe went through in attempting to protect Steve. So it, it's, a, it's a game of two halves for Joe in this film, in my opinion. He's like a caricature, though, isn't it? It's like, the, it's like they've gone, right, what, what's Joe Elliott's personality trait in this? He's very driven and he seeks perfection. And then, I mean, the actor who played Joe Elliott in this film, it must have been the easiest set of lines he's ever had to learn in any acting gig he's ever had in his life. Because literally all Joe says in this film is, oh, it's rubbish. We've got to do better. We've got to do better. We will do this. Let's do better. Oh, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Let's do better. Ah, oh, it's rubbish. And again, let's do it again. That's what he does for an hour and 25 minutes in this film, essentially. <laughs> it's like he, he's, he's completely caricatured as some almost sociopath who'll never <laughs> accept that people are doing well enough and drive them and drive them and drive them. And it's like, and don't get me wrong, it's well known that like every band is always like a main driving force. So, you know, in Metallica, it's Lars Ulrich and I made and Steve Harris and Def Leppard, Joe Elliott, you always have this character. But I mean, they blow him up like a cartoon character in this, and it's totally one-dimensional, and that's all he does to your points. I mean, you know how much I love Joe Elliott, Paul. I mean, he's like my second dad. But like by the end of this film, I couldn't stand him. I was like, you've turned me against Joe Elliott because your portrayal is so he's so annoying in this film. When obviously he's not annoying at all. He's a lovely man. So there you go. Yeah, you don't get any of that at all. And th- this really plays into that thing of because we, we're, it's almost like we're spending so much time telling Rick and Steve's story that 
everyone else. So we mentioned it earlier, Sav becomes uh, collateral damage, effectively. The, we do get one lovely shot of him in a tiny pair of shorts, you know, the famous Union Jack shorts. I think he's in them in a backstage scene at one point. So that's nice. But that besides, so Joe, yeah, Joe functions, like you said, in such a such a one-dimensional manner. And I, I could I could live with it for the first half because I felt like it was almost like a, a slight bastardization of the Mutt Lang thing, you know, that you have to do it 20 times before you get it correct. Yeah, so I was all right with it for the first half or so because I just felt it was producing some kind of function. But there's a definite point where, he, like I said, he changes around his attitude towards Steve, which comes from, like you said, it's, it's that drive thing. You know, we have to be moving forward, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's, it, yeah, it's absolutely infuriating. And regrettably, we have to point out that it's just badly played anyway. It, it's, it's badly done. We've talked about some positives. We know some people like this. We know Joe Elliott doesn't. We know you don't, Paul. Um, we talked about inaccuracies. We talked about the negatives as well. Okay, so this was a TV film. So I've sort of got two questions in one here. So as a TV film, was this always doomed to fail in the sense that has anyone made a good TV film of a band? Okay, and then I'll put a second question straight on um, after it. Is, is it possible to make a good Def Leppard film? So was this doomed to fail? And is it possible to make a good Def Leppard film? Okay, so again, a bit of research. I looked at what is considered to be low budget. The average cost of a film that hits the big screen is somewhere between 70 and 90 million US dollars, apparently. And a feature made with less than a $2 million budget is considered low budget. Now, I don't know how much money they had to make this film, but here's an example of three films that are, quote, low budget by that reckoning. The Blair Witch Project came in at under 800,000 US dollars. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, allowing for inflation, $380,000. And Rocky, which is a classic, $1 million. So there's... There's three that show that an amount of money can be spent and you can make better than adequate films. You can make fantastic films on low money. I couldn't find anywhere exactly what the budget for this was. But I struggle to believe that, given what you said earlier, take the Montreal thing, for example. That's a classic example. You, There was no reason for you to have to do this at a point where... Uh, where the weather was looking like it was. There's so much stuff like in the background. You can see US Greyhound buses in the background at various points, really small little points like that. That highway that you're driving on is evidently not British. It's got like a double yellow line down the middle of it. And maybe it wouldn't bother a lot of people, but, you know, we're from Britain. I, like I said, I've driven the road that Rick crashed on lots of times in my life. I've driven around that very bend and it doesn't look anything like that. And I don't think it costs that much money, does it really? Maybe it does. I don't know. But doom to fail, no, would be my answer, because I think that I've just given some examples where, there are ways of spending with paucity and still producing some goods. Okay, so that's fine. I'm happy with your conclusion there. It doesn't matter if I wasn't happy with it, but just to let you know, I am happy <laughs> with it. So this is a film that is underachieved. It's many, many failings can't be excused by the fact that it is a TV film um, ran on a low budget. Okay, so that being the case then, does that mean it is possible to make a good Def Leppard film? 
It, okay, it does. 100%. Paul is nodding his head. All right, then. Okay, so I'm gonna gonna put you in the position of director here, Paul. And I, I want you to imagine you're making a new Def Leppard movie. Now, Joe Elliott said he doesn't think anyone wants one, but me and you do. Okay, we want to see. We want we want the wrongs of hysteria, the Def Leppard story righted. If that's I don't even know that's a word. Corrected. So you're making a Def Leppard film. Where do you start on it? Where are you ending it? And what's your what's your narrative focus and arc? What is the Def Leppard story you tell? As per what you did right at the start of this podcast, this is the story you tell. Because when you write it down and you run through it in the form that you did, it's clear the story, that's the story that is to be told. It is Rick and Steve's story. It's the story of two twin tragedies. And you could then go on to tell the story. To, you could add on 10 minutes at the end that talks about how they overcame these tragedies and what have you. I am a fan, generally speaking, of television programmes that, dare to do a little different in terms of how they leave their audience. So the best example I could think of for this is, and again, I hope this is something that's been seen by our sort of, I know there's a lot of US listeners to this, and I'm sure it was sent to the US, uh, Blackadder, which is a uh, famous BBC television comedy series. And for for four seasons, this is a, deeply humorous it's a truly very funny and brilliant television program at the end of the fourth series which is set in the first world war out of nowhere they deliver this unbelievably tear-jerking ending where the soldiers in the first world war trenches go over the top and it is very heavily implied that they are gunned down by German machine gun fire. And the film closes out on a field of red poppies. And after years and years of watching this television programme and been laughing at it, you are left unbelievably cold at the end. The tragedy of what you've been shown really is hammered home in that final 60 seconds, two minutes on screen. So given that the Def Leppard story is the story of twin tragedies. I personally tell the same narrative arc that you outlined right at the start of this podcast, but I would move through and I would tell the story of Steve's death. And the on-screen footnote would be that the band then went, you know, were able to pick up and what have you, but I'd actually end it with that tragedy because ultimately you. I don't think you're telling the story of the band I think you're telling a story of twin tragedies. And that's where, personally, I can see it being very unpopular, that, with people who are listening to this. But I just use the Blackadder thing just as one example. Um, There's another, there's a really good film called The Player, which is a 1992 film, which sort of plays with this idea a little bit that endings don't have to be gloriously happy if depending on what story you're telling. So I would go with, I'd, I'd tell the story of the tragedies and I'd, I'd, I'd make the story, you, the feeling you come away with, I'd make you coming away and feeling, my word, what happened to Steve Clark was awful. We've got our redemption. We had it with Rick. I think you have to finish the Steve Clark story. Are you also, are you also filming this in black and white in an art house style in French? Well, see, what you've got, of course, is you've got the 
if indeed you went down that route, you went down my route, how are you actually handling the guy's death on screen? You know, what are you going to do? Are you actually seeing him? I don't even want to go there. Do you know what I mean? So, but I just think if you're committing to telling the Def Leppard story, then how do you avoid that that is completely central to the whole thing? You can't tell the Def Leppard story without doing it. So, therefore, I'd make it the focus and I'd do this subversive thing. I'd make it that that tragic telling. Okay, okay Paul, I respect your treatment of your new Def Leppard movie. However, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum. I want a happy ending, and I'm going to, I want I want cliches, I want tropes, I want <laughs> I want Rocky running down the beach, even though he's not in the Death Leopard story. I have the tiger, you know what I mean? I, I, I want all a montage. Life. Yeah, I want a <laughs> montage. So I'm gonna I will stick with your narrative. I like the narrative. I think it has to have both Rick and Steve in it. You can't just make Steve a footnote at the end. But all of these films, they essentially follow the the rise, the fall, and then the rise. Um, again, that, that, that's essentially what they do. So the Death Leopard story is a little bit different. It has a rise, a fall, a rise, a fall, and then a rise. So the final rise, where I would end it, is I would end it with, you get exactly the same film as you, except not in black and white and not French, okay? Um, <laughs> and I the Tiger, and Rocky in there, perhaps a little bit more fun. And I'm having an ending at the Don Valley homecoming gig which I mm. think in Death Leopard, and then you get Vivian Campbell in it then as well, um, and it shows the band going on and getting through these tragedies, and you've got, and that to this day is their biggest gig that was their gig in Britain, and it was clearly special to them and everything, and you know you see the success of um, Adrenalize and you see the success afterwards. So I... <laughs> I can't, I can't, I, I, I like your subversive, you know what, I like your subversive idea. You know when you get like, uh, does anyone buy DVDs or Blu-rays anymore? But you know, you can get alternative endings. I'd like my film that ends in Dove Mali, but there's, there's an option to have your your deeply depressing. <laughs> um, yeah, do you know, I, I, I very much get the view, mine will not be a popular view, but I, I remember having a really big argument, big argument, big discussion with my brother once, where um, when Friends finished in 2004, I if it was me writing it, Rachel doesn't get off the plane. No way. She goes. And you end with this thing of, oh, hold on a minute. We're not getting to it. But just because I can't help but always bring it back to the, the one show that had the guts to do it and how effective it was. But yeah, listen, I, I think if you're going to do it and you're going to give it the, the, the big ending, I think you've got it absolutely nailed on. I cannot think of another more iconic, celebratory Def Leppard moment than that Don Valley show. Okay, well, so apart we'll... from the, you know, the original Monsters of Rock thing, but you know what I mean, like post-tragic Def Leppard. Yeah, we'll throw, we'll throw Monsters of Rock in as well. So we'll have that, and then we'll have your alternative ending on the DVD, and that's a lovely package, and yeah. hopefully there'll be another 454 reviews on Amazon, and it'll continue to get five stars. My final question for you, Paul, one-word answer. Do you want to see an attempt at another Def Leppard movie? Yes. Me too. Paul, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for <laughs> taking the time. I know it was a torturous thing that I asked you to do, but if nothing else, at least hopefully the conversation about the film has been uh, better than watching the film itself. So thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for this therapy session, Neil. Ben, I'm so freaking lonely. 
So what, 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 what do we call ourselves then? Atomic mass. <laughs>